When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. I am Drew Taylor, joined as always by the immaculately dressed, the strongly perfumed Charles Hood. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Drew. Thank you for that introduction. I'm wearing a sweatshirt, and I don't know how you know how I smell, but I'm, I probably do smell great. Yeah, I might have been actually describing an 18th century count, so... <laughs> But whatever, it, it still applies to you for sure. Um, and we are Gee, so thanks. excited. We're so excited to be here. We're digging up another great old classic episode. Yes. And who are we talking to today, Charles? Well, this is this was our what our second interview that we ever did. This goes all the way back to December of 2018. So this was after Fallout. Uh, we had talked to the composer Lauren Balf, and then uh, I think Lauren led us to Eddie. Is that how that happened? And we so this is editor Eddie Hamilton, um, who you know went after this went on to edit Top Gun Maverick and get nominated for an Oscar for that, and then uh, he edited the most recent Mission Impossible as well. But this one we dive into Fallout, and that's where we are. I think we probably talk about Rogue Nation as well. I'm sure. Uh, so this was the start of our amazing friendship with Eddie. Yes, for sure. And also, you know, he has been with us for the entire run of the show. He always checks in on us. And we've uh, we we love Eddie is basically all I'm trying to say. And one one of our favorite people in the world. Absolutely. Just the most loveliest man and, and the the unbelievably talented editor. I mean, he is a genius when it comes to cutting these movies. Uh, it's just, yeah, C- couldn't do it without him. Sure. Yeah, he is the best, and he listens to the show. We know that. So, Eddie, how are you? We love you. Text, call. We miss you. Um, all right, Charles. Well, let's get into it. This is our very first chat with editor Eddie Hamilton. Today, we have a very special guest, the one, the only... Eddie Hamilton. Eddie, how are you? Uh, it's great to be here, guys. Thanks for inviting me on your show. Uh, it's a great, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I think my first question is, why did you come back? Knowing how they put these movies together and how much work is involved, what made you sign on again? Um, well, Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise are excellent collaborators. So filmmaking is an entirely collaborative process and it's one of the best things about the process is there's all these different talented people who come together to create a movie. And when you work with really nice, creative, collaborative people, it makes the work a pleasure. It's very, very hard work and, and, you know, there are lots of emotional uh, highs and lows. It's a true roller coaster working on a mission movie. But Chris... 
manages the chaos and Tom is a committee of one person who's in charge of making the film. Right. Which means that he has final cut. He delegates that pretty much to Chris McQuarrie. And so we are this little small unit of people who are making this gigantic movie. And we don't really get much outside input, really. It's just we're, we're just we're in the in the boat together and we're we're making the film. And in post-production, Chris is exceptionally good at editing as well. You know, uh, I would be out of a job if he knew how to use an Avid. You know, seriously, he's <laughs> he's really he writes the movies and he directs the movies but then he edits the movies with me and he is not at all precious about anything he's written. Um, he understands that he's making mass entertainment. He wants to make the film play and work for as many human beings on the planet as possible. And um, nothing gets in the way of that end result. You know, he listens very carefully to the audience feedback that we get from our various test screenings and he, he reacts to it and Tom reacts to it and we discuss what we're going to do and then we 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 do it and uh and so when you when you work with very very nice people it, it's a pleasure to come back and collaborate with them again you know it's you life is short right. and you want to work on projects that you know have a chance of of being timeless which is obviously the holy grail when you're working in movies. You know, I would love to do a film like, you know, um, JFK or or Aliens or Back to the Future or, you know, going back in time, Bonnie and Clyde, which I think is a masterpiece, you know, things like that, which where people are still watching the movies in, you know, in the decades after. Mm -hmm. And it's a it's really an honour to be part of the team to do that. And um, and so when you've had a great experience even though it was a huge challenge, don't get me wrong, there were days on, on Rogue Nation where I was looking at the, the the challenges presented to us and thinking, I cannot see a way out of this, you know. But Chris was always very calm in the eye of the storm and would say, no, no, I'll figure it out, we'll figure it out, we'll get there. And we would just slowly chip away at it and uh, and and improve it and then, you know, remove scenes that didn't work and improve scenes that were, remained in the film and slowly slowly we found it um and uh when you're working with a director you're you're you know what it's like you guys are filmmakers you're collaborating very closely for months you know and you it's just the two of you really and and a lot of the time with chris i would actually go to his apartment in london he has a beautiful apartment near hyde park in central london and with a beautiful view it's a wonderfully creative space you know there's a lot of fresh air and um an, an amazing place to kind of gaze out of while you're thinking about how to solve the creative problems and the challenges in the movie and we just sit you know on an iMac he would sit next to me we'd have two you know LG 21 by 9 displays and I would just sit working and he would he would kind of we'd just sit and chat and drink tea and you know work on the movie um and you know, especially, which probably one of your questions will be about the 12-week hiatus when Tom broke his ankle. Yes, <laughs> but that yeah, that is when I remember. One, one, yeah. one of the greatest, um, one of the great opportunities uh, which came out of that. And, and Chris, as you know, he has this, he says disaster is an opportunity to excel. And you have to have that mindset when disaster really does hit like that. And he looked at it and he said, no, no, this this will be somehow a blessing. 
And actually the blessing was that we got to pretty much fine cut everything that had been filmed up to that point, which was around two thirds of the movie and uh, spend a lot of time with Tom and Jake Myers, the producer, and Tommy Gormley, the first AD, we would sit and we would read through the script and we would discuss how we were going to solve the, the, the story issues that were presented to us when we reviewed, you know, the assembly. And in a perfect world, every movie would stop filming two thirds of the way through and edit everything <laughs> right. and then, and then, and then pick up and, you know, film everything that's left. And of course, on every movie, you do have pickups, sometimes two or three weeks. And I read somewhere that on the Lord of the Rings movies, Peter Jackson would film for three months for each additional movie. You know, they'd figure out what they needed and then they'd go into film for 12 weeks to fill all the little bits of holes and make everything work. So um, it, it was it was that really that allowed us. And I just we used to sit in his his uh, his apartment and work on the film and. Every dinner guest or anyone who came round, he'd be like, here, here, let me show you this. Let me show you this. And he wanted feedback immediately from the audience. He's so anyone who came to any dinner guest or any any friend who came round, he would he would show them the scene that we were working on and ask for feedback immediately. He says, I want the cold water thrown in my face as soon as possible because audiences around the world are brutal. And I want brutal honest opinions from people who haven't necessarily seen any of the other movies i just want them to watch this scene right. and tell me how they react emotionally to this scene yeah so he's he's very keen to get feedback as soon as possible uh, on every scene even if it's just a two-minute scene he'll show them i remember the scene that we worked on the opening of fallout was the very hardest thing to get right everything up until you know the fuse is lit up until the end of the Delbrook hospital scene when when he goes you know what's done is done when we say it's done and he he injects the dude in the neck um which always felt to be like a great place to kick off the opening titles because you've been on this incredibly downbeat journey and they've just had a little win you know when Benji pulls the mask off and and they and and you're just enjoying that moment and they have this this phrase where they want they know that the audience enjoys seeing villains feel the burn so you wouldn't necessarily <laughs> show the the villain kind of going did none of that happen and you just want the audience to, to you want it to be clear to the audience that actually no they just manufactured that whole news report and that none of the bombs have gone off and that everything's fine but you you they tom is aware that audiences really like seeing villains feel the burn that's what he says and so <laughs> you know he likes to he likes to have a moment to enjoy that you know which is what that is at the end when when he says you know what's done is done when we say it's done and then we can kick off into the high energy opening titles but that sort of 20 minutes i think it is nearly 20 minutes or even no, it might be 18 in the final version i can't remember but it was 23 minutes at one point and we were struggling to find other movies that had the opening titles that late <laughs> right, into yeah. the movie the i think yeah, yeah. it was the departed and then <laughs> and then um also i think you know avengers and specter were both 12 minutes and i thought 12 is you know is still quite a long time <laughs> Um, but we we knew, you know, even when Chris first pitched me the idea of the opening of the film, I felt like once we'd really worked at it and got the pace right, it would work. You know, the idea of starting with this dream and then having this incredibly detailed mission briefing, which is every word of it is necessary for everything else to make sense in the movie. And yeah, we, we, were we, re about that. we rewrote it 
50 times, you know, <laughs> and and every single piece of information you do need because it all pays off later. You know, it's set up to, in order to make stuff pay off later. And um, we tried so many different iterations of the mission briefing, so many different voices and so many different ways of scoring it and so many different ways to. And I know it's a lot. I know it's a huge amount of exposition. And I, we know it's a massive information dump, but everything is necessary. And it's like eating your vegetables. You know, you need to <laughs> you need to get all that information into the audience's consciousness, whether they remember it all or not. They'll. They'll, they won't remember the details of the smallpox outbreak. Right. But then later on, when Tom is driving to Kashmir, two hours later, and he says, smallpox, you know, you'll go, oh, yeah, there was something about smallpox. <laughs> and, ah, so that's why they got, that's how they got yeah. Julia out there. And, you know, uh, so that was a very big challenge. And then going into the scene in, in, um, in Berlin, again, just d- d- choosing ways to kind of, compress the story so that you still felt the emotion of you know losing the plutonium then going into the scene with Delbrook in the hospital room which again was three minutes longer it was like a 12 minute scene and we managed to get it down to nine minutes and then we got it down to eight minutes and then I think we got it down to like six and a half minutes I think but it was just again it was like just compressing it but still trying to make all the emotion and the intensity of that moment land but that was that was the challenge but I, I but when Chris pitched me that idea, I remember thinking, no, this is going to work, but it is going to be very difficult to get it to work. And it will require a lot of refinement. But I had I always had faith that 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 faith in the process that we would eventually get there. And this idea that Chris had of of showing Ethan's worst nightmare realized, you right. know, with the bombs going off and seeing the news report and seeing Wolf Blitzer would be a really clever way of opening the movie, you know. And you get a great mask gag that no one sees coming. What's interesting in the hospital is is everyone senses that something's up because usually usually the the you know the IMF team have some kind of plan of what they're doing. And a lot of people start to click when Tom gets a bit angry and starts kind of like right. losing his cool. When Ethan loses his cool, and I, you know, the number of audiences we've shown it to, we've been very sensitive of when the penny drops that something's up in that scene. You guys tell me, when did you, what did you Well, think? we had been watching the 60s show that week, I think, for the podcast. So I was like, oh, I, oh. I wonder if this is like an elaborate. Yeah, this, this, this is the yeah. most, I, I, this might, like, I love that scene so much because it's so much like straight out of the old show. It is, it is. Where, yeah. where, so I, to me, when I was watching it the first time, I was. I was I was watching it and I was like, this is going really dark, really fast. Yeah. And I was like, I, I heard this movie's really dark. This is really dark. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, and I was like, I feel like this is going too dark. I hope this is some kind of Mission Impossible scam. Yes. But I'm gonna go <laughs> yes. with it and see how it goes. And then once it did become a like an IMF scam, I was yeah. I was like cheering. I was yeah. so excited. Yeah. No, it is great. I mean, once it, he it, says go and the wall I know, drop, you're, you're like, like yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and you hear the tickle of the theme come in, yeah. kind of bum, yeah. bum. Yeah. And you know that you're just going to bum, bum, bum. And the, yeah. or you're just like, we're going to tickle you. We're going to tickle you. We're going to tickle you. You know, that's how it little, is. The little reference of the first movie, or I don't know if it was intentional yes. or not, but they're like, did we get did it? Did we get it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All of that is absolutely deliberate. You know, a lot of thought goes into that stuff. Yeah. Of course we got it. And then, you know, and then nobody sees, well, nobody that I've watched the film with predicts that there's anyone other than Wolf Blitzer there. When, yeah, when you right. pull the mask off, it's like, and for all the fans out there as well, 
Benji gets to wear a mask, yeah, yeah. right? So for everyone who's been like tuning into Benji's mask story, yeah. and in 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 uh, Rogue Nation he got to wear a mask, but it was only in a in a flash forward dream sequence, yeah, yeah. and then he was he was discovered, yeah. you know. And so we we were wondering whether we should play it like, you know, when Simon pulls the mask off, he's like. I got to wear it, you know, but, you know, it, it felt like for the fans, people would pick up on it. And it was a bit incongruous to have him go, guys, I wore a mask, yeah. you know, yeah. hey, hey, hey. It just added more joy. To exactly. The yeah, just, exactly. And it's been so exciting. I was, I mean, I was, yeah. Yeah. And it's been three years. So he probably wore exactly. a mask in those exactly. three years. Yeah. Exactly. You know, but yeah. I, I remember seeing that. I mean, I think between the two of us, we've seen this movie theatrically probably more than anyone else. But I, wow, I remember great. seeing it in, in the theater, like six weeks later and that moment still got huge like audience response yeah I mean it was really amazing how well this movie did play to the audience yeah no it it was it was I can't tell you how much work and love and blood and sweat goes into uh, every frame of the film I mean literally every second of the movie we work on a hundred times to, to refine it and try and make all those moments land and we listen so carefully to the audience responses in the test screening and if you need more time for a gag then you add like 12 frames or 18 frames just for the laughter so that there's enough for it to die down before the next piece of dialogue comes up so I'm really it's enormously gratifying to hear that response from you guys because I you know we are we are we are so focused on delivering that to you and we're so passionate about about knowing what it means to fans. You know, I'm a fan. I can tell you all the movie theatres where I saw the missions over the years. You know, I was in um, Odeon Leicester Square in London for the first one. And then I was in the Empire Leicester Square for the second one. And then I was in the Cinerama Dome in LA for Mission 3. Then I was in the BFI IMAX for Mission 4 um, <laughs> when it came out. I saw the 70mm print. of, of and, so I, and I saw them all in op- opening weekend, you know. And then to be a part, to get a call to be a part of Rogue Nation was very daunting, you know, because you do feel the weight. It's very exciting. I mean, enormously exciting. But you feel the weight of expectation and you're so... You're so passionate about about not letting people down, you know, and you desperately don't want to. You don't want to be the, the guy who dropped the ball, you know, <laughs> when 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 there's such a great when there's such a great streak. So, I'm it's th- I'm thrilled to hear you guys say that, and I'm I'm glad you enjoyed the movie because it's it really makes all the the, the incredibly you know painstaking work worthwhile. Yeah. yeah. back with more from editor eddie hamilton after the break check out our new nba show beyond the arc part of the cbs sports podcast network where you can find me john gonzalez nba insider bill Ryder, and ashley nicole moss five days a week talking all things nba whether you're looking for insightful discussions upbeat commentary breaking news interviews or coverage of all the biggest stories in the nba our new show is the place to be five days a week Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. 
Rise and shine, football fans. Start your day the right way with Morning Footy, a podcast that covers every aspect of the global game, headlines, match previews, analysis, interviews, culture, fashion, and plenty of banter. Join as we track the thrills and spills of Europe's biggest title races, the business end of the Champions League season, a summer packed with international competitions, MLS, NWSL, and much more. Subscribe to Morning Footy. And you mentioned the the title sequences, how this all builds into the title sequence. We wanted to ask you about, obviously, the title sequence is something that's a tradition from the old show. Each episode had its own title, specific title sequence. Yes. Really awesome and very Amazing. edited moments. Amazing. So I to hear you yeah. talk about the title sequences for each movie and the different approach well, for each it's, one. It's, as a fan, right? I'm excited when I see a Mission Impossible movie because I'm like, what are they going to do with the theme? That's what I want to hear. Is like, what are they doing with the theme and what are they doing with the opening titles? Because it's always so cool. I mean, um, Kyle's opening titles for the first one were just awesome. Yeah. completely awesome and they still are awesome even though they the technology within them feels sort of slightly old school there's the energy of it and the and the the excitement of it is still so a lot you know we would go back and watch it i have all the other movies on in the media avid media composer so i could call them up and refer to bits at a moment's notice and we would often go back That's and watch that awesome. watch it just for fun, you know, just to give myself a kind of kick up the bum to, to, you know, to re-energize myself. And, you know, I really liked three. I remember when I saw three at the Cinerama Dome, there were so many incredible moments that stuck with me. The opening of three is the best opening, I think, of any of them. The best villain. And also you have got really extraordinarily uh, memorable you know, trying to restart, you know, in the helicopter when they're flying through the wind farm and they're trying to save um, Kerry Russell, you know, and then this thing that happens with her eye when the, the charge goes off oh, in her head, yeah. you know, you're like, and it, you, that image really stuck with me. And then the breaking into the Vatican. I remember in the Cinerama Dome watching that movie going, I can't imagine how hard it must be to edit one of these films. <laughs> Genuinely, that thought, I was thinking of, of um, Marianne and Mary Jo who er- edited that movie and I was thinking, God, that Vatican scene, that is that's so detailed, like all the moving parts that are going on in that scene yeah. and all the, the suspense and the timing of it all and the every, the way, all the, the composition of the shots is just so incredible. And, and then you've got the... Prob- well, one of the greatest Tom Cruise running scenes at the end when he's running through okay, China, and then yeah, yeah. and then you know the way that Michelle has to. It, I mean, so much great stuff in that movie, uh, but not a not a great title sequence, or not a, oh, not no, really no, a title no, sequence. No, not really. No, you're right. Not a great title sequence. Um, no, you're right. Um, and then the Brad Bird kind of CG version of the title sequence, traveling down the tunnel. Yeah. Um, you know, was again its own thing that worked great for that movie, um, but. Chris, for Rogue Nation, he really wanted a callback to the first one, which you can tell it feels really similar in terms of the pace and the energy and the style um, and the, the what they what the designers the term they use to describe the um, the letters traveling behind is called a train. They say that uh-huh. the letters are a train going behind, um, but it's very similar to the first one. They did yeah. that with the train in the first You're the, one. That was the first movie to bring in the black dossier folder from the old yeah, that show. Was, that was very specific. And you Who's, know what? Whose idea was that? Chris's know? idea. Okay. And we filmed it about three weeks before we finished. There was, wow. there was, awesome. there was a day we had of pickups and the, we did several things. We did, 
Uh, right. So when Tom, when Ethan is locked in the record booth at the beginning and the gas comes out, there is a shot of the gas coming out near his feet, which is a very, which looks like a straightforward shot of just gas coming out of a vent. But it's really hard to get a camera that low, a, a, you know, a, a film camera that low. So they had to build a mini set. And we had a shot that was kind of, you know, from a kind of higher angle looking down, but it wasn't as dynamic as we needed. So we went and built a mini set and we got, I think even Tom came and like sat in the shot with his shoes in it because he's so passionate about it being him. <laughs> and we did this shot where we just, Chris wanted a proper push in towards the vent as the, as the gas started coming out, just to make you sort of sit up and lean into that moment of like, oh shit, what's, what's happened. So we did that and we did the dossier and I remember we filmed, you know, we threw the dossier down and filmed it. And I went and I, um, they had edited the opening titles and done an amazing job film graph. But then I had these dailies of the, uh, of the dossier and Chris really wanted that in the movie as a, as a nod to the series. And so I remember this is literally, it might've even been like 10 days before we finished. We, we got the, those shots and I just put them in the couple of spots where they are and then sent the edit back to Filmograph and said, hey, guys, do you, what do you guys think of this? And they were like, this is awesome. We're going to put this in. So that's how that ended up in there. But it was, you know, Chris just wanting to have a proper nod to the original series. You know, that was why he did it. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> and then the fire. And then, and then the fire. Yeah, Fallout has the fire. Yeah, the fire. Yeah, that was that was um, it was just a cool idea, I think, that Chris responded to. And and of course, it's very hard to to, you know, they, they had this concept of it. Aaron and Seth at Filmograph had this concept of this of these flames. And they kept saying, you know, everything's going to be burning and, and you know, the, 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 the Paris is going to be burning and, and the, 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 the kind of edges of the screen and the, and the cutouts of people. And it's very they would do stills and show us, but it's very hard to explain the idea of the moving fire without seeing it. And it's very difficult to do as a as a motion graphic concept. And they, I remember they did like two seconds just to show us. And Chris was like, yeah, this is great. And originally the pace of the sequence was slower. And Chris was like, no, 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 we really need this to be, we need this to be up to 11. Like the energy of the imagery in this sequence, it, you know, the audience needs to kind of go, whoa, you need to sort of yank them out of the, the darkness that they've been in and give them this blast of imagery. And, uh, and, and then Lorne's music, of course, was just yeah. nailed it. The way that there's this cool sound in the middle, which is like in the middle which sounds like the helicopter you know and we, he, we use that sparingly in the score but if you listen right in the middle of that he there is this sound that really sounds like a helicopter which we were like that is so cool because <laughs> it thematically ties in with everything that's coming up later yeah. you know we love the music and we love lauren now after meeting him so mm, yeah, yeah. so funny yeah um yeah. and uh yeah amazingly talented yeah <laughs> the score is incredible yeah he actually mentioned in his interview that you had a, a knack for knowing when to employ the plot, which is the yeah. secondary level. That's true, that's theme. true. We, we, you know, I'm just a nerd like you guys. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I love the plot theme. And I remember, and, you know, when you're editing the film, you're often editing, I edit totally silent. And I'm imagining the music and the sound effects as I'm editing these scenes. Um, and and um, even some of the dialogue scenes, what I tend to do is, I throw them together and then I turn the sound off and I watch them. I just watch the rhythm of the cuts to see how they, how the rhythm and how the emotion of the characters' faces and their eyes all feel. So you just kind of feel the rhythms of the scene without any sound as a, as a way of 
like testing it as stress testing the scene, you know. And so I would quite often be imagining the plot theme sometimes to myself <laughs> and imagining how it would work in different places. But, you know, the way he uses it in the helicopter sequence is just off the scale. The scene where where Ethan is flying above Walker's helicopter with the payload and it just goes, bam, 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 bam. You're like, bam, 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 But you're just going, this is awesome. Awesome. I remember... We were very fortunate in our in our very first temp mix uh, for our first preview. Edgar Wright came to watch the playback. Edgar Wright and his brother came, and um, he was geeking out over that stuff as well. He was loving it because he he just loved the movies like we do, and he was really complimentary about the film. And he was like, "Guys, it, the film's awesome. It's just like fifteen minutes too long." And it was. It's just that we hadn't had the time at that point to go through and really crunch it down. Right. But he was dead right. And um, and so Chris and I took great heart from that, but it was just a case then of, of of literally looking at every frame of the movie and asking if it deserved to be in the film or not, you know, and and crunching it slowly, 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 slowly crunching it down until we had a version that was too short, which was worse. And at that point, you know that, that that's not helping anymore, and then you just let you just let it breathe out a little bit more, and then you're like, okay, everything is landing now. It's if if you don't give enough time for the dramatic weight of scenes to land, like the scene where where they come out of the when they get off the boat and they go up and they're they're like getting into the old BMW and they open the garage doors and the traffic cop is there, you can't make that scene shorter because there's no suspense you know you need all that moment of them like looking at each other and her looking at them and then you're thinking oh god they got so close and now it's all gonna oh no what's gonna happen what's gonna happen (laughs) you know um uh, so you know we had shorter versions of that scene and it just wasn't as effective so you have to hold you have to have faith and and the scene where um Ilsa is following Ethan through Paris you know and they're just it's just this moment that you get to spend with her as a character um with this beautiful music and and you it's just we had to have faith that it was gonna that that that, and that's Chris's favorite scene in the movie you know and he always imagined this scene of 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 Ilsa following Ethan and then he's leading her to a secret place so they can have a conversation and and um but it it you know it worked and it's it's just a very lyrical emotional moment in a film which is filled with them but is why the film kind of works so well i think is because you've got this great balance of genuine emotion and um characters you care about and and then you've got the intrigue and the drive and the the mission gadgets and all that cool stuff that you also need you know (laughs) You had a question about Ilsa. Yeah, well, so you were talking about Ilsa and, and Ethan there in that sequence. Yeah. Their romance t- is so unique to me. It's yeah. been over two movies, and yeah. they haven't kissed yeah. once. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. There, I heard, you know, McCory's talked about how there was a kiss that was cut out of Fallout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the romance is so effective, and so much of that is in the editing I have of finding those moments of yeah. just looks between the two yes, of them. This yes. romance is so great and yet they still haven't kissed i'm curious to know if there was a kiss that was cut out of rogue nation ever and also just talk about that romance and how to make that work in rogue nation well she does kiss him in rogue nation because she she, when she revives him 
Doesn't she when when he's when he's doesn't uh, she kiss him? Yeah. Well, she's she's giving him she's giving mouth to mouth. Is it mouth to mouth? No. Or does she? Oh, maybe that was removed as well. No, there was a moment where she was so pleased that he was alive that, that she'd so, so that she, may I can't, did that not make it? Maybe we cut that out. You were so okay. last there, right? I, no. I, okay. In that case, no, we may have I cut it out. No. Okay. Maybe yeah, we did no, cut no, it out. No, 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 because because no, they did in so there was a version of that scene where. He comes to life and she's kind of so relieved that she's succeeded that she just leans in and gives him a kiss. And there's a moment where he looks at her and is like, what was that? You know, um, and she knows what she's about to do as well. So it's kind right, of because this, she double crosses, she's double right crosses him and about to do it. So, yeah. But she doesn't want to. because yeah. She's grown quite fond of him, I think, and has a lot of like mutual professional respect. Yeah. Um, and but no, we must have cut that. Okay, so sorry, team. Yes, there was probably a scene where they did kiss <laughs> well, there, and that was that cut. Again. No, Tonight. that was cut. Um, and then there was a scene. Obviously, there was a whole scene that we removed at the eleventh hour and the fifty ninth minute. I mean, this scene made it into. We had four test screenings. The last test screening, they tested it within with the kiss in and without the kiss, and it was a fifty second scene. Made this film fifty seconds longer, but everyone is aware that fifty seconds. May not sound like much to you guys, but I promise you, when your bladder is straining, fifty seconds is a lot, <laughs> and the 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 audience you can lose them so quickly. I have this this way of describing when you're watching a movie is is you have a needle in your head that goes into the green when you like it and goes down into the red when when you're like uh you know when you're kind <laughs> of slightly checked out it, the needle dips down to the red and i I'm aware I'm conscious of 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 through every second of the movie, which way the needle is moving for the audience. And you have to keep it going into the green uh, as much as possible. And when there's a scene where you, where the, it was interesting. It, 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 uh, I'm trying to think what the audience was. This is for Fallout. Yeah, there was a scene which was basically after, from the top of the Tate, you know, when Ethan stood on the top of the Tate Modern and the helicopter's flying away and you have that enormous piece of music, you know, and, and Lane and Walker have just escaped. Uh, there was a scene there where um, Benji and Luther and Ethan discuss, you know, they, they discuss, they're trying to figure out like what the, what, what the villains are going to do with the plutonium. And then Ilsa walks in and is very angry with Ethan for letting Lane get away. I think Chris will probably elaborate on this if you interview Chris McCrory. Yeah, there was a fight scene that was kind of a, 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 a kind of a fight. It was kind of a dance. It was it kind of, it worked. It worked. It was very powerful, and it was. But it, it interestingly, it kind of it kind of made it Ilsa slightly weaker in some ways, and uh, in the end, the film. You know, we didn't need the scene to make the film work, and you know, ultimately. If a scene can go, it should go, you know, because um, the momentum of the film was was affected. You know, the 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 drive, the kind of the drive at that point, you needed to kind of get to the third act because the moment that they they they're driving to Kashmir and you're getting into New, you know New Zealand or Kashmir, you feel you start to settle into the fact that the film's reached the, the climax and you know that you're going to just be in for like a twenty minute roller coaster until the end of the movie. And so, and, and the audience is just slightly, 
on the back foot until they sense that the end, that the third act is happening, until they have the briefing about the Death Star and they have to drop the, you know, the proton <laughs> torpedoes. At that point, you're like, okay, now I know the movie's ending. I'm like, I'm excited for the end of the film. But up until that point, the audience is like, what, what, where are we going with this? And haven't we had enough of Il- Ethan and Ilsa? And mm, so, so in the end, we, we, we took it out. And I remember Chris leaning over to me in one of our final DCP checks. We saw the film in Dolby Vision in Dolby in London, an amazing screening room. But the, that's the best way to see and hear a film is Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. And he 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 leaned over to me and said, "Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad we took that out." And he was really torn for a long time. I mean, he he spent you know a week agonizing the maximum amount of time possible. We were literally like finishing the DI and the sound mix, and it was like the last day that he could make the decision. He said, "Okay, no, take it out. Let's do it with that." Um, but he'll he'll elaborate on that if you talk to him. You know, we will, we will, <laughs> yeah, we will. Yeah. We'll be back with more from editor Eddie Hamilton after the break. You're one of the only department heads that returned from Rogue Nation. And Macquarie has talked a lot about... Jake Myers was the producer on... He was also both right. know, on both films. Yeah, well, there's a very, was, few, there's very yes. few people that carried over. So, That's true. And, and Macquarie talks about wanting this to feel like... You know, because each yes. movie had a different direc- director. That's true. Did, did that kind of ethos uh, influence your editorial style? Or did you have this in mind when you were well, doing it? Well, y- yes. I was very conscious of it. I was very grateful to be asked back. It was an enormous privilege. Um, initially... Right. The the job of the editor is is to ensure the story is told properly and economically and um, accurately. You know, so so you engage with the characters and you understand the story and the the plot. You know, it, it may seem like the most basic thing to say, but editing is purely about storytelling and the story that you tell from the first second of the movie to the last second of the movie with every image that you choose to show and how long you choose to show it. And so the, 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 it's about a well-edited film is, is about, uh, is about telling a story well, right? Basically. And the story in this case was, you know, a, a different story with a different DP and, with a you know same cast, obviously, uh, and and a, and a director who was slightly more comfortable with how he was choosing to film the scenes with his lens choices and how he moved the camera and how he lit the sets, and then it, it's at you know the editing was was just about it was about making it clear you know, making the geography clear and making the scenes suspenseful and exciting and funny and dramatic and engaging and making them feel paced right. That's really what it comes down to. It's about taking the material that's filmed and putting it together in the in the best possible way um, so it feels right, you know. Um, and there isn't necessarily much point in imposing an editing style on a film you you need to let the material kind of dictate what's best, you know. So for me, it's about looking at the material and and responding to it and and putting it together the best way that the material dictates. So 
uh, the, I'm not sure really that there was there were many kind of editorial flourishes per se that I bought to it. Maybe in the you know the, the, the editing is about percussion, you know, and about rhythm, and so maybe you know I remember in the scene where we're into cutting at the end when Benji and and Luther and e, when Benji and Luther are diffusing the bombs and and Ethan's climbing up the rocks. I remember you know there was a section there where I like made all the shots one frame shorter so that the the, the pace would accelerate to when they cut them. So that was a little thing, you know, but. But then I remember maybe in the gun battle in the, you know, in the underground um, in London when they're in that in that kind of underground tunnel and the lights get cut off. And in the gun battle, there's a lot of kind of editing rhythms there, which I suppose I kind of did on instinct. And you in know. the club, that's very rhythmic because you kind of cut to the with the strobe lights with yeah. Ian. He and Cavill are, are kind of looking at each other. Yes. Oh, that is true. Yes, there is a little bit of that. But again, you're looking at the dailies and you're you're finding the best bits and finding interesting right. ways to juxtapose the images to give them life and to give them t- to disorientate you in the correct amount of way. So so um, that's kind of what editing's about, really. It's so uh, I, I'm not sure that we I mean, I was conscious of this idea that Chris wanted it to feel different but the 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 way it was filmed you know the the diff the you know rob hardy being the dp and lawn doing the music uh different costume designer different production designer you know it was all all of that all that contributed to the footage being different which dictated a different way of putting it together i suppose is how you would put it you know um I just want the film to work for the audience. With I don't want to impose anything on it. I just want I just want you to watch it and get lost in it. You know the way that we when we watch a movie, we love to do that. You know when there's a great movie, you just want to get lost in it and yeah. get engaged in it and just the time to fly by and not even to look at your watch. You just you just want to you know and not have to be worried. You feel want to feel confident that the director is somebody who has control of the story and is 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 holding your hand and guiding you through this world and, and is confident with what they're doing. You know, right. I think that's the secret. Yeah, they definitely you know. accomplished all that. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Go ahead, whatever you want. All right, so... Um, Ask about the 180. The 180? All right, yeah. so, okay, so I was watching Rogue Nation last night and I saw Fallout last week at this IMAX screening. At okay, IMAX okay. To me, it felt like, and maybe this is more of a cinematographer choice uh, between the two different DPs, but... The 180 rule yeah. of you know following eye lines and things. Yeah. Uh, it seems like Rogue Nation followed that more closely, and Fallout kind of it all totally works. Yeah, but it seems yeah. like there's some 180 rule violations yeah, more that's so. True. In Fallout. But, you know, it's the, that's the least. Imp- it's so unimportant. You know, <laughs> it, it, genuinely, it's not it the the, true, the emotion right. of the scene is the most important yeah. thing. You know, you can look at Walter Murch's rule of seven he's got and the emotion is like 51 percent of the edit choice and two-dimensional and three-dimensional continuity is like three percent and two percent you know it's so unimportant if you understand the geography then then it's about and and the reason that we did it is is mostly with with julia and um luther yeah yeah and and it's it's because we had these great Chris calls them pressure angles where they're where they're really close. The camera's close on them and it's this it's a pressure angle. So you feel the character under pressure in the moment. And it's what is right for that moment. When when those characters are under that much pressure, it's the right way right. to 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 cut the scene so that you 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 are 
momentarily disorientated but you're not really but it's just correct for the emotion of the scene and so i it doesn't matter it genuinely doesn't matter you know it's like is it right for the emotion are you in the scene um i'm aware of it of course i'm aware of it and and it's important (laughs) it's very important if it's confusing so there were moments in the bathroom scene for example where you know the, the the geography of the bathroom is such that there are there are two bathrooms with this bank of mirrors in the mirror middle. And we have to make sure that that is clear to the audience right up front. And in the, in the first few versions of that scene, we didn't quite have the coverage to show that properly. So they went and they actually, we, we filmed the, one of the first scenes where, where, where Henry walks around the corner and down towards the cubicles at the end. We went and filmed that three we went back and refilmed that three months later because we hadn't set up the geography because people were like wait because you know there's that great shot where we're tracking with ethan and then we reveal henry behind the mirrors fantastic shot but if you don't understand the geography that's really disorienting and confusing so we so i would never i would choose to follow all the rules of filmmaking there you know to make sure that the geography is clear but when it's like the sixth scene with these characters and they're both hunched over this device, right, yeah. that it's it like, you get it, you yeah. know, it's fine. It's, it's, it I mean, doesn't I didn't matter. even notice it, I think, until like probably the last yeah. time I saw it, which is, the, I think, the fifth yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. You, know, like, you bringing up Henry, we should get you to weigh in on yes. the mustache. Yes, <laughs> yeah. It was great. Well, yeah, I, know, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting how he, um, it was his idea completely, yeah. you know, uh, he just said to Chris, hey, how about this for an idea? Right. Now, I have a theory that people with moustaches are clear villains in the film, right? So <laughs> so if you, if you see a guy with a tash, he's immediately sus- suspicious. I'm sorry. It's yeah. just, I just, so I thought, well, it's a bit of a giveaway that he's going to be an antagonist. Now, we, we didn't hide that. And he's an antagonist in the first film. But for me, I was like, anyone, most people watching this film are going to go, well, he's clearly not going to, he's clearly going to be some kind of bad guy because he's right. got a moustache. Now, I may be a small minority of people who think that, but I, I, but you um, put him in the, uh, in the opening too, right? In the mission briefing. He's, he's one of the apostles. That, that is true. That is yeah. true. Yeah. I mean, you have to be really paying attention to see that he's in there. Yeah. yeah. That is true. He is there. And, and there was a whole bit, of, there was a whole scene where, in fact, when he goes in and there's that wonderful, again, second mask gag when uh, he re- where the audience realizes that the IMF have swapped Lane out for Benji and Walker has just basically confessed to Benji unknowingly. It's just so beautifully played and yeah. so perfect. That scene was um, two minutes longer and there was loads more dialogue from Walker about explaining more of the plot about how his apostles did this and he did that and how he got the plutonium and how and again it was like the audience doesn't need it you know they understand enough to know that that they've collaborated in some way and we just need to get to the bit where where there's that moment where the penny drops you know when he says you know, the, the, yeah, she yeah. was right. You know, <laughs> the IMF is just is just grown men playing, you know, in rubber masks, and then you're just like, ah, and <laughs> it's so satisfying, so satisfying. And then Alec Baldwin comes in and does the whole thing. Oh, it's just great. It's yeah. great. Anyway, <laughs> in that in that scene too, the there's this amazing shot that's so seamless. Uh, where you have two Solomon Lanes. Yes. Where Benji's putting on oh, the mask. Oh, it's beautiful. It's how, so old school, How did it? you do that? That's just... Because uh, there's two of you, them. You want to see how the sausage is made, really? <laughs> I mean, but, uh, Chris will we, tell you, yeah. but basically they... they 
it's it's a very it's a very simple trick of using a motion control camera. Right. Motion control camera is a camera that, control, that, that, but... that can just repeat the same move. Right. And it was but actually the idea of Jody usually... Johnson. No, but what's clever is that the camera actually leaves one of the, the lanes for about 18 frames and then comes around and then you reveal him. So you get this 18 frame point where there's only one of them on the screen and then the camera comes around. But they, they did it, you know, with Lane in the front, you know, pretending to be asleep. And then right. they did it again with where they put, you know, a double and then they, they put Benji, they put Lane in the back. And um, it, it was the idea of Jody Johnson, the, the visual effects. It was totally his idea. It's, if I recall, I don't, I think that it was something that was presented to Chris as a, here's an idea for an like in-camera mask gag, oh, which so doesn't cool. require, it's, you know about the one in Rogue Nation though, which is done with mirrors. Do you remember, do you know about that one? No. Oh, okay. So this is cool. So the one, the one <laughs> where in the flashbacks, you know, where they, where Benji is talking about, well, we just impersonate the guy who stole the ledger in the first place. And then you see Benji in, uh, you see Benji having the mask put on him. Uh, the camera comes around and you see a mirror. You see, you see the guy, the real guy in a mirror opposite. And actually that is just a fake set with a, with a hole, right? But it's the whole set is built like a mirror. And so effectively you've got a double for Ilsa and a double for, you've got Tom in the mirror and a double for Tom. It's super, super cool. It's all done for real. But if you look carefully, when you rewatch it, go back and watch that, that thing where you see the the mask being put on Benji, the, the sink of the guy, the guys are trying to copy each other in the mirror. And so their, their hands don't quite line up, but it is a totally in camera mask gag. It's really elegant. That one in Rogue Nation. So, so they're always trying to think of ways to to do it you know elegantly without right. relying on cg you're thinking you know. of yourself parent trap how would Haley mills <laughs> exactly we'll be back with more from editor eddie hamilton after the break Uh, the opera scene in oh my uh, is word. masterfully edited. That's yeah. your Vatican scene. So, scene. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it is. It is. Oh, did you my word. did you revisit Man Who Knew Too Much before? Did you, you know look what? At it I did. I did look at it because I because I wanted to see how they used the musical score in that. Right. You know, there's these close ups of the of the baton and you're traveling across the notes. It's not quite as stylized as what we did in in Rogue Nation, but. Uh, you know, I'm a huge Hitchcock fan anyway, and it was nice to go back and see Jimmy Stewart and to watch that that yeah. that film. And uh, again, that scene was just something which Chris had this idea of it, and he had he he sensed the end result. He had this idea of like Ethan having to make the decision about I've got to shoot the Chancellor. That's and I have to make the decision in half a second because the note's coming, and so I've got to shoot the Chancellor. It's a bit like that speed, isn't it? It's like shoot the hostage when he says at the beginning yeah. of speed. It's yeah. like, what do you do? <laughs> shoot the hostage. But you have to have set up the, the entire geography of the world and all the stakes in advance so that when you get to the moment in the music at the climax and you see Ethan having to make the decision, you you are you understand everything that's going through his mind in the tiny amount of time that you're given to do it. And so in order to set up the geography and the rules of the world and, you know, the fact that he's only got one bullet and the fact that there's a guy there and there's a guy there and Ilsa's there and the Chancellor's there and Benji's there. And, you know, it's, it's something which was just months 
of work, months, seven or eight months of just, I mean, it was literally the first thing to be filmed and the last thing to be filmed on that movie. And all these tiny little connected bits of tissue, which so that you understand everyone's geography. It was just a real puzzle, a real puzzle. And again, something which you, when you're editing, you really don't know quite how it's going to end up, but you have to start. So you just, you put shots on the timeline and you start watching them and it's way too long. And then you start going, okay, well, what about if we move this here and we move that there and we took a bit here and we put this and we need to film a shot of the guy of the cop coming out of the door and walking down the corridor. And then we need to see Benji and then do this and do that. And um, we slowly, slowly, slowly pieced it together, always having this idea of what it was going to be eventually, but never quite knowing. And it was just a, con- a process of constant refinement and and enormously rewarding when we finally like everything slotted into place but it was you know an enormous challenge and something which you know we had faith that eventually we would get there but you don't really know when you're you know what it's like when you're making a movie you have to have faith that you're doing the right thing but you don't really know until you start putting it together and 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 screening it and feeling how the audience reacts whether you've actually got anything or not you don't really know you're going on experience and faith and trust and and passion you know mostly and so yeah that was the opera scene if that answers your question yeah, i yeah, hope absolutely yeah one word quick fire sure yeah. and then i have a very important yeah no it's all good yeah. keep uh, going is, this, or is yeah. it the ranking or yeah yeah do one more question okay sir okay so we talk about the location title cards in the series yes some are better than others yes and the cashmere title card oh yeah is the best one <laughs> in the series <laughs> yeah it is amazing yeah and we want yeah. to know where, how that came about that was just chris is always chris's idea he was like we're gonna see cashmere on this map on this ipad yeah. And then we're going to push in through it and it's going to feel like it's a, like it's growing on a map and then we're going to dissolve through to them traveling. The thing is about mission is you never really see them traveling. That's the right. it's yeah. like they're always somewhere and then they're 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 somewhere else. So you never really see them get on a plane and travel. You know, it's always just it's, everything has to be in motion, you know. And um and 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 I think interestingly, one of the things about three that didn't work so well was seeing Ethan in an office environment because he's never really in an office environment in any of the others. He's yeah. always out, you know, in in action. You know, he's 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 always in a, some remote location right. doing something cool and never really in an office and. That's kind of Benji's job, you know, or, or Luther's job, perhaps. But Ethan's always out and about. And um, so we never want to show traveling. You know, it's always like they're in London. Now, magically, they're in. And it's the same in, in Fallout when they travel from Paris to London. It happens like in a dream. You know, he you, you, you Ethan just has this image of his wife with Lane and then he wakes up and then you're in London. You're like, wait, right. are we in London now? Yes, you are. You know, it's like <laughs> a really elegant way of transitioning to a different you know, part of the yeah. location. Love those you know. dream sequences. Well, yeah, this is the first one with dream sequences. That's yeah. also true. And it was something which, again, didn't wasn't mission, but was right for this film, you know, because it starts with a dream, you know, and I think, and also you have to remind people of Julia in the middle of the film. Right. 
so that when she turns up at the end, they've gone, oh, wait, yeah, that was the girl from the wedding. Oh, but there was also this other scene in the middle where we saw her. So she's obviously somebody, for people who have not seen any of the others, it has to work for them as well. In fact, you know, we, 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 it's incredibly important that it works for people who've never seen any of the other missions. You know, we're well aware that, you know, there will be a sizable percentage of the audience who may not have seen them. So, we, we stress test the film in that environment as well. And we had to have it. And really it was the only way to make it work. And also it, it allows you to connect with Ethan as a character a lot more. You know, you do really, I think you, 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 that was always, that was always Chris's pitch was, was making it, making you feel more emotionally invested and connected with Ethan as a character from the very beginning all the way through and i think he succeeded in that you know i remember i was on i went on set to watch them film that final scene between ethan and julia in the hospital because i was like i would love to see this and it was actually filmed on a mountainside in new zealand so that they had that amazing view out of the tent but um it could have been filmed anywhere obviously but it was you know we traveled for an hour and a half in the freezing cold at 5 a.m and then the sun comes up at like you know 20 past seven or whatever and then they're we're filming by quarter past eight and then by quarter past ten they'd finished filming you know or or maybe it was a bit later but i remember it was dark when they were rehearsing and then the sun came up and then by the time they turned round they started on tom and by the time they turned around then the sun was up and you had that beautiful view out of the tent um but i wanted to be there because it's like I, I just wanted to see this resolution between Ethan and Julia, just as a just as somebody who's as a nerd, you know, as, as a fan. I wanted to see it play out, and then and then I remember, I, I remember taking the piece of music that 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 um, Giacchino is that how you pronounce it, Giacchino? Giacchino. Giacchino. Okay. How the Giacchino? What he wrote for that scene at the end of Ghost Protocol when Ethan sees Ilsa, you know, the wrap-up scene when he sees, sorry, when Ethan sees Julia across the way, right. and there's a little moment where they exchange a look. There's this beautiful theme that he wrote, which he used in three as well. It's like this piano motif, and I put it on there as a test. I never show it to Chris because he hates watching stuff with music on it, but I wanted to. To, to watch it for myself with music. And uh, I remember thinking, I think they've nailed this. It's re- it really works. Like you can see the emotion on Ethan's face, the relief. And it just, it's, this is going to be a great way to end the film. You know, I've got a feeling this is really going to work. And, and those are, these are these incredibly private moments you have as an editor on a movie where I'm the, literally the first person on the planet to see this. <laughs> uh, you know, the dailies arrive it's raw footage. I watch it and then I slowly build the scene. And by like five o'clock or six o'clock in the evening, I'm watching the end of, you know, Mission Impossible Fallout on my own in a, in a house in New Zealand, in Queenstown, in the dark. And I put the music on from, from Ghost Protocol just to see how it felt. And I remember thinking, this is going to be great, you know, and, and it's so sweet. It's, it's a real privilege and an honor to, to, I, I treasure that every day working on a movie because, I'm always the first person to see the film, you know, to see any iteration of the movie and to see what it may end up being. You know, it's so exciting on a daily basis to to be to be given that honour, you know. Um, yeah. It's the best job, I think, you know, but I would say that. Right, we have to have, <laughs> now I've thought about your quickfire questions. We have to ask one more. Yeah. Before. yeah. Okay. 
the transitions in this movie yeah. are, are unlike any other. Yeah, that's Well, true. maybe two had some similar ones. But the smoke. The yeah, smoke the wipe. And an Ilsa and wipe. And the Ilsa wipe. And there's a BMW location title card wipe. Yes, that's also true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so again, those were just things that organically felt right. The Ilsa wipe is something where we struggled with the transition for that scene. And we were like, why don't we just do a cheeky shape wipe and just see how it feels? <laughs> it and works. it works. It's so, great. so it's fine. And Chris was like, yeah, great. Let's, yeah. let's do it. And, and the BMW thing was something I just tried because they had that great shot. And I thought, yeah, let's do that. That's fun. It's just stuff that you, you play with and present as an idea. And then people kind of go, yeah, that's cool. Let's, I'll, I'll dig it. And you, it's you know and there, I remember using a dissolve in Rogue Nation we only used a couple of dissolves I think in that movie but again they're both really effective and work and feel emotionally correct you know um, maybe there's only one dissolve in that film I can't, I can't remember where it was now but um, no I think it was after isn't it when Ilsa drives away on the motorbike uh, you know after Ethan gets knocked off and I think, yeah. I think there's, a, there's a dissolve there that we used um, and then there's one other somewhere else I think but but yes, it's a good point. But we are conscious of them, and a lot of thought goes into them. Yeah. Oh, they're and, great! They're and awesome. um, you know, we know that they'll be picked apart by fans, you know, like you guys. Yeah. So, so <laughs> we don't we don't take any decision lightly. I promise you. We'll be back with more from Eddie Hamilton after the break. All right, well, here's the big question. Yeah. Can you rank the Mission Impossible movies? This is just... It's, 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 your top it's three. a huge challenge. It's but a yeah. huge challenge. But this is like, just Eddie you know, Hamilton's... Yeah, I think, I think okay. I'm going to go... Start from worst to, to best. And then, worst? Yeah. Or, at least, <laughs> or least or favorite. Or I'm do, not going to put my own ones in there. I mean, I'm very proud of them, but I don't really... It's very hard to very hard to emotionally connect with something that you've seen a thousand times. Let me tell you know. something. Lauren nakedly put his in the, his top three. So, yes. yeah, you know. There is a precedent. I'm not going to do that. You know, two, to be right? honest, yeah. I, I, I think I would go, if I'm doing a three, if I'm doing three, I mean, probably... I think Ghost Protocol because the Burj Khalifa is the high watermark of the of of action set pieces in these movies, and I remember seeing it in IMAX in the cinema, you know, in on seventy millimeter film, four by three, full seventy, you know, fifteen per IMAX. It was extraordinarily. Did you love the exciting. way that he opened it up? Too. Oh, totally. He, oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. Oh, yeah. of course we did. Did it yeah. twice in Fallout. I'm yeah. well aware of that. But I remember seeing that, and I was always gutted that it never made it onto the Blu-ray. I that know. version. But you're but doing it for this. Fallout. Yeah. Absolutely. The IMAX aspect ratio changes are absolutely in there because I wanted people to to have that opportunity to to you know it's it's, it's slightly geeky and nerdy, but it's like I know it will matter to a lot of people yeah. who want to see that shit and. It's a shame that there's no way of seeing that now. Yeah. Maybe it's like there's a bootleg of it on YouTube or something, but you can't see it. We'd yeah. actually love to do an IMAX double feature, try to get that to happen. Or we could yeah. get Ghost Protocol and Fallout as a yeah. feature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So but it, 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 it'd again. be so cool. I mean, seeing that, the way it opens out, when the way the shot was just, you know, planned. But Chris planned these ones absolutely. He's like, yeah. Ethan walking to the edge of the plane. IMAX opens up. Ethan running to the helicopter. I remember he saying to me, IMAX opens up. Even it's when like going from black and white to color and yeah, Wizard of Oz exactly. Even yeah. when I yeah. when I showed a I remember when they were leaving New Zealand, 
Chris and Tom said, can you do a scissor reel for the crew so they can see what we've done in New Zealand? All the helicopter footage. And there was a lot, I swear, 70 hours of helicopter footage down to seven minutes and 40 seconds or whatever it is in the film. The biggest, the hardest thing I've ever done. It's such, so daunting when you're presented with that amount of stuff to go through. But um, I remember building the scissor reel for them and putting the IMAX opening even in the scissor reel because Chris had told it to me <laughs> and it was only like three minutes long um, using music from the other movies but there I put it in there so that when we watched it on a TV so the five or six helicopters all landed on the last day of filming in New Zealand and everyone was excited and high-fiving and 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 thrilled I, I the amount of relief when the helicopters landed safely every day could not be quantified it is it's so dangerous what they were doing and every safety precaution is taken and they are all world-class experts but still if something happens in a helicopter it's there's not much you can do yeah. you know you're gonna probably die you know and so uh, especially if you're like above forest or in mountains i mean you know th there's no way to get to you it's just crazy anyway so it was so stressful but they all landed on the last day everyone breathed a sigh of relief and then I was able to show, we all sat around and we watched this three minute sizzle and everyone was thought it was great. And I'd managed to even show them shots they'd filmed the day before because the dailies are processed overnight. And I went through and I picked all the stuff they'd got from it. So it felt really current. And they were like, my God, we only filmed that like 12 hours ago. <laughs> and, um, and I put the IMAX change in there because I knew, you know, as a fan, I want it in there, yeah, you know, because yeah. it's, it's like, it, it's it so means good. the world it to does. people who care about that yeah. stuff. It's cool. Yeah. So okay. So Ghost Protocol number one. We can't. We oh yeah. Can't, so we can't probably I probably go yeah. Ghost Protocol and then and then and then three because there was so much I really love about three and I did have a great time watching it at the Cinerama Dome and the, you know the lip reading was cool. I, I I wonder if we should bring back the lip reading in another movie because yeah. well, it's a cool it thing. Back, it, was it was in four. It was brought back. Yeah. In, it was. It yeah. was. And I feel like there were, that would be a nice Easter egg to put in a, another movie if. You know the lip reading, which is a cool like thing that was a cool payoff, and uh, but also there's the you know the whole rabbit's foot thing, which we nodded to a bit in in uh, in Rogue Nation with the key ring at the beginning. But there's a, there's it's a nice to hear that these Easter eggs are are really there and not products no no of no no they are they're yeah. genuinely no and yeah. Tom is aware you know. Okay. People continue still ask him what the rabbit foot's it what the rabbit's foot is. He is aware of. You know, JJ's mystery box theory works brilliantly for a lot of things, but yeah. it does it does create enormous frustration as well because you're like, what is the mystery box? You know, yeah. what is the rabbit's foot? It's you know, we in Rogue Nation we were aware of the this ledger. If we didn't explain what it was, it would just be this literally a MacGuffin like the rabbit's foot. You yeah. know, the, what do they steal? But anyway, in the end, Chris was like, you know what it's going to be? It's going to be a, a ton of money because he's going to need a ton of money for his terrorist organization and it will right. be satisfying enough for the audience that there's all this money and it that Ethan the McGuffin doesn't matter it doesn't matter but you just need yeah. to know that it's that it's not you know just this the, the, the filmmakers knew what it was you Let know me tell you, that did confuse me though going into fallout which I've told you before yeah is like what is Solomon's deal? I thought, oh, when they revealed that it's the money, I was like, oh, is he just sort of a Hans yes, Gruber exactly. type? I know. You know, like, he's like a but bank to, robber, but, no, but it's, it's to, to fund, fund yeah. It's to fund the organization. Yeah, which yeah. you get more of in this one, but yeah. I was, yeah. But yeah, no, that that's what it was. But, but also, it was, when you talk to Chris about it, 
you can ask him because we didn't know what it was. Right. You know, and but we were aware that it would be frustrating if we didn't explain what it was right. in the way that the rabbit's, the rabbit's foot, foot is just like it just niggles you at the end of that movie. You're like, yeah. what was the rabbit's foot? You know, um, and so and Chris was like, the, the simplest solution is there's just a ton of money that that uh, that he needs and that Ethan manages to to, you know, cleverly uh, play against him by memorizing the bank figure so he can't kill it. You know, all that stuff yeah, at the end, right. which was done out of necessity because we only had two weeks to film the ending of the movie. I mean, I'm well aware that the the the, the action highlight of Rogue Nation is the middle of the film. And at the end, it's just a small gun battle and two people running through the streets of London and the villain being put in a box, you know, which but it's was still satisfying. It's satisfying yeah. in the way that the end of of World War Z was satisfying, even though the the climax, the action climax of that movie is in the middle, but the end is incredibly suspenseful. Well, so. all of the Mission Impossible movies before Fallout sort of follow that too. They all yeah, had kind of hit a peak in the middle, whether it's the bank vault Vatican. or Vatican well, or, okay. or Dubai. Okay, maybe, but I think like the the the, the fight scene in the in the parking lot is pretty awesome at the end of Ghost Protocol. Oh yeah, we love you know, that. That, that, is, that. That is that yeah. is an awesomely yeah. like beautifully thought out and invented right. and yes. choreographed sequence. And which I would is, say the train in the first movie too. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Although interestingly the incredibly movie. short. Yeah, how, how, when is. you watch yeah. it back now, it's like you, all the images are, in, and it's beautifully filmed. Like the amount of energy, yeah. how they did it, where you know the amount of wind they must have been throwing on Tom on the, the roof of yeah. the train, 140 it, miles an hour. It's really, really, really good, and it totally stands the test of time. But yeah. it's it it's astonishingly short in comparison to what we did in Fallout, which is like a mammoth set piece yeah. with diffusing bombs and helicopter and a fight on a cliff and all that stuff. Um, uh, but, um, it's kind of what Chris imagined and what he wanted and what Tom wanted. And so we kind of found a way to make it work, but, um, yeah, you, you, so more, I, more than that, you guys nailed it. I mean, yeah, I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased to hear you say that it, you know, it was enormously challenging, but you know, you use all the tools, you know, the music is amazing. You know, the acting is great. You care for the characters, Henry's bringing it and that's you know when they're fighting on the cliff top oh, you yeah. know they really went to Norway and they filmed that for real oh, it's yeah. completely nuts uh, and Tom there were scenes where Tom was doing it without the safety harness on as well because he, he didn't want to be constrained by that and I remember watching the dailies and you're literally just you're like on the edge of your seat watching the raw footage going oh my god he's really close to the edge <laughs> oh, and Henry's got his harness on and there are bits where he's holding on to Tom because oh and you're just thinking this is Oh. I don't know. <laughs> is, it, is it true the final shot of Fallout, literally that white right before the, yes. the curtain call, yes. is, is the film, film running out? Yes, <laughs> that's true. It was very funny. It's Chris was like, I need three more frames on that. I'm like, dude, if two more frames and we're on the flash. It's like we don't. We can either artificially slow it down, but it won't look good, or we can just. He's like, just just leave the flash in there because it'll be cool. And it's like. He, you know, it's it's so mission that on the 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 when Tom nailed the take, the film ran out literally three found three uh. frames later. You know, it's like that is the run and gun nature of these movies. You know, and so it's great that we he was just like, yeah, let's throw it in there; it'd be fun. But it's also great. I mean, we don't want this to be the last movie, obviously, but it, it does feel like okay, if this is the last one. I've gotten everything that I need from you yeah, know. Yeah, no, the well, you. But that's what that's what you know. You never know if you're going to yeah. make another one. And Chris wanted to go all out, and Tom wanted to go all out, and um, 
so I'm thrilled. But just to go back to the ranking, it's four, three, and then one probably for me. Okay. If I'm picking my top three. So what about, what about one kind of still speaks to you? Well, um, there are things about one that I that I love, like the the whole open the the whole opening is incredibly economical. The way they set up the chewing gum and they set up the team and they set up it's 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 extremely tight. I mean, beautifully tight. The 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 way that the, even the scene at the beginning where Emilio Estevez is like, say his name, say his name, and the guy says, and then the, it's so quick compared to our hospital scene. You know, it's very very uh, very economical. It's beautifully economical, and then the the. The, I love the crash zooms and I love the Dutch angles and I love the split diopter shots and all that De Palma stuff is just like awesomely yeah. cool. And um, and the, the CIA heist is still incredibly suspenseful now. I mean, it's the, the it's so well choreographed and so exciting to watch. I mean, all the Book of Job stuff is is kind of really dated yes. and and creaky, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, but it also doesn't really matter. It doesn't really yeah. matter. And but but you know, and then the whole stuff on the train at the end is it's so ambitious for the time and so effective. And um and it's amazing when you see how young Tom looks, you yeah, know, in yeah. those. It's it's like you forget. You're like, wow, look and at that. His chemistry with Vanessa Redgrave is oh, so good. Oh, so good. <laughs> so good. So good. And I you, love love the nod that you guys Yes, did yes, yes. That was something that, that Chris really wanted to try and figure out a way to get in there and it's done slightly off you know off camera but it's there for people who want to pay attention to it um, do you miss the musical number it's interesting i always the okay here's the problem the musical number that was there you know it it it, it announces a major player as a character you know it's like when kate capshaw does her musical number right, right. in temple of doom it's awesome and then she's in the film all the way through and she's great i love that i love i'm a huge fan of temple of doom i'm a bit of a naysay a lot of people don't think it's but i i it was the first one i saw in the cinema and so and and also the the whole the opening 20 minutes is awesome perfect escapism oh, yeah the the diamonds in the ice and then the, the it's all and like hold on to your potatoes well, dr jones and to all be that fair, stuff that was stuff a lot of that was left over from Kasdan's original draft of Raiders. Okay, well, great. I yeah. don't care. I love it, <laughs> and, and I love I love the jumping out of the plane yeah, in the in the, yeah. in the, the, the the dinghy, and then the going down, and then yeah. the it's just amazing. Yeah. And then the whole ending with the minecart chase and the water and the bridge, yeah, and it's yeah. just yeah. like out of this world stuff. Mm-hmm. I, it, and also, you know, so difficult to do that. Like the visual effects are amazing yeah you know but just old-fashioned roto for all i mean it's it's astonishing how hard i mean i think return of the jedi is the high watermark of those old school photochemical compositing shots all that stuff inside the tie inside the death star yeah with the with the millennium falcon and the the tie fighters flying it's so mind-bogglingly difficult to do that photochemically nowadays it's easy but it's um, so beautifully done i mean amazing stuff. I also love that Temple of Doom is a movie that is the perfect movie to be made by two guys going through horrible divorces at the time. Like, you you can see <laughs> oh. that. You can see that pain and that kind of darkness. I guess. You know, I, don't, I don't. It's really I, disturbing. I, yeah. I feel, yeah, I don't, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'm ripping I, the hearts out. Depresses, yeah, the, the idea of divorce, the divorce of divorce is just really, <laughs> really depresses me. You know, it's like, 
Um, although, yeah, the whole like pulling the guy's heart out. Yes, 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 yes I remember. I saw, yes. I saw them as a child. It I was remember. disturbing. I was in the cinema <laughs> seeing that, and like, and I remember. And then when I saw and it on music, video like, later, I was like, I was like, what? I, there was some really horrific, and it's not there in the Blu-ray, and yet you can see it on YouTube. Someone's put it on there, so you can like revisit that. Uh, but I remember thinking this is like maybe Spielberg thought he had gone too far, or I don't know. But it was I mean, they were they were dark, depressed, yeah, really dark. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, where were we? Kate Capshaw. Kate Capshaw. Yes, moment. of course. The musical number. The White Widow didn't deserve a big introduction. <laughs> we like love that. the White Widow. Yeah, we do love the White Widow. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, but. But the, the introduction that gave her was which kind of like threw the film off balance because she doesn't have, she doesn't, she plays, she's, she's cool. She's a great character and everyone loves her and Vanessa's great. And I, um, I mean, there was a fight between her and Ilsa. Oh, it was discussed, but never filmed. Yeah, never filmed. It. No, okay. no, no, no. It, that was discussed as something that may happen towards the end, but you know, not, not, it didn't evolve like that. And, um, but the, the, the problem was it, we could get more characterization out of the speech and, uh, and it just, it, it also, it just slowed the film down at a place where the film doesn't really start for me until Ethan discovers he's got to brain lake, break lane out of prison. At that moment, you're like, Oh, I get it now. He's going to break lane out and then everything's going to go tits up and then it's all. Right, so right. at that point, you're like, okay, I, and now I'm invested because until that point, the film is slightly treading water with MacGuffins and, and, and amorphous kind of ideas of villainy. And you're not quite sure what, what, what they're doing and who Lark is and how it's all going to play out. And so the moment that, you know, Ethan sees Lane's picture in her study, you're like, oh, okay, this is, Lane has somehow arranged for Ethan to break him out of prison. He's the only guy who could put him in prison and he's the only guy who can get him out of prison. It's like, this is, you know, oh, I see where this is going now. And and now I can settle in to see like what on earth, how on earth is he going to get out of this? You know, it's like, this is a proper impossible challenge for Ethan to solve. So that was the reason that the musical number went and it was the right decision ultimately, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously our final question is just, should they come back to this in a couple of years? Would you do a third uh, mission? Our, our like dream is for Macquarie to come back and sort of complete his little like. Yeah, trilogy. that would be awesome, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, I often said that to Chris. It's like, dude, you, you're doing the trilogy. You've got yeah. to do the trilogy. But yeah. you know, there's a point. He is the 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 mental and physical exertion of directing these films and writing them. Don't forget, and yeah. producing because he gets he's producing with Tom. It is an enormous amount of energy and you are shredded at the yeah. end of it. I mean, mentally and emotionally shredded uh, and, and exhausted. And the idea of climbing Mount Everest again is not appealing the moment you've come down. It's like that whole thing with um, with Daniel Craig when he finished Spectre. You know, he joked about, I never want to be in a body. Didn't he say, I'd yeah, rather cut I'd rather my hand. My like, yeah, like, yeah. And, and of course, when you've just been through that, I do understand. But then, of course... You know, five years go by. How many years is it since Spectre? It was 20, you know, four years, probably five years till the movie comes out, the new one. So, yeah, of course. So I, I would listen for me. I'm a fan and it's it's a huge privilege to collaborate with Tom Cruise and Chris McQuarrie. Like I said, they're really they're great collaborators and, you know, they're they're incredibly nice to me and very kind to my family, you know. 
And so my wife loves them and is very mm. delighted if I want to work for them again, which is an enormous part of, you know, the challenge of making films is it's an enormous time commitment. And your family is is caught up in that, whether they like it or not, right. you know. And um, so so I would love to do another one. Yeah, it's always, it's it'd be a huge, it'd be a massive privilege. It's like I, I work with Lee Smith, another editor on X-Men First Class, and he had done Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, and he'd done Inception and and as well at that point, and he was about to do Dark Knight Rises, and you know he was thrilled to yeah. be doing the third one with Chris Nolan, and uh, it's, a, it's a, what an honor! It's such it's such an honor and so exciting. But Nolan's a guy too that that does movies in between. I was just talking. Yeah, to Brad. That, that's true. Yeah. That is true. Yeah, I mean, I I you know. That's true. Yeah, Prestige. What a great film. Yeah. Oh, I love that movie. Oh. But we were I was just talking to I was up at Pixar talking to Brad Bird about Incredibles and it's like, do you just want to do a third one to get it out of the way? And he said, No, I want to do what Nolan does, which is okay. he goes away, he makes another movie, and then they'll come back to him and say, Well, do you want to do one now? And you yeah. go, Yeah, I'll do one, you know, yeah. now. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, who knows? I mean, Chris has got he's always got many projects that he's developing. I mean, scripts that he's written or scripts that he's sent, or you know, he he's um, now's the time for his Booth movie, I think. Yeah, and the one that the, the interesting thing about Booth though is that it's not. I I, I think it's more of a like it's a, it's a six hour miniseries. It's not you know if you're going to do it properly, you know, right. with what he wants to do with Booth, it's it's not necessarily a movie necessarily. You know, um, this is about John Wilkes Booth. Yeah, yeah, this yeah is. exactly. Like it's, long... it's it's a it's a proper like biopic. It's not just the end of his life, the assassination. It's everything leading up to that and. It's a really interesting story, um, and and you know him and Tom have got they're cooking up stuff all the time. Yeah. You know it's it's exciting. You know ideas that they've got. You know a lot of people would love to see Edge of Tomorrow too. Yeah, you know that's a great film. Film and you know I'd like to see Emily Blunt back and stuff. But let's see what happens. I don't know what will happen, but it would be a, it would be a, an honor and a privilege and enormous fun and very exciting to be asked back to do it to do another one. Yes. Well, on behalf of Charles, I wanted to say. Thank you for accepting this mission. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure, guys. Thank you for having yeah, me. Thank and you um, so much. hello to everyone out there in in uh, Light the Fuse podcast land. No, no, I'm I'm good. Okay. I'm good. I'm just like see the movie. It's coming out on uh, Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah. yeah see yeah. it. And um, you know, there's some there's some cool special features in there. You know, yeah. turn off turn off the motion smoothing on your your TV, uh, oh, please, yes, before you watch important. the film. Yeah, please Google how to turn off motion smoothing <laughs> on your TV. It's it drives me nuts when I go to people's houses and the motion smoothing is on. It's, it's a whole deal, it isn't comes, it? That's the default. Oh, yeah. that's how it comes to turn the, it off yeah. as the default, please. <laughs> All the TV manufacturers. There are directors that are, that are getting together. I think that have, are starting to they're trying to get convince the TV. Companies yeah, to stop it's doing it's, that. it's got a. It's, I don't it's, get why you would ever want to watch anything. Like I know it's so frustrating. It makes it look like. Yeah, yeah, makes it look like 1970s television, doesn't it? It's terribly disappointing. Anyway, all right, thank you so Cheerio, much, Cheerio, guys. Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, is produced by Charles Hood. That's me and Drew Taylor. Our supervising producer is Abby Smith. This episode was edited by Luke Burson with music by Kevin Blumenfeld. The interview is a production of Bravo Echo 11 LLC, and the podcast is a production of Paramount Pictures. All rights are reserved. This message will self-destruct in five seconds.